Hello there, Pacific friends. Welcome to another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. I'm Ben Bohane. Today, we're talking about cryptocurrency, blockchain, and what might be the future of finance, including decentralized finance, known as DeFi. We'll be talking about the pros and cons of this emerging technology and how it is already impacting the Pacific. My guests today include Lord Fusitua from Tonga, who wants to make Bitcoin legal tender in Tonga. Lord Fusitua has been a member of parliament there, as well as chairman of the Commonwealth Pacific Parliamentary Group on Human Rights. Also joining us is Josh Hallwright in Melbourne, who is the blockchain advisor to Oxfam, an NGO which has been pioneering the use of digital payments directly to people in the aftermath of natural disasters. Now I can see that this new world of digital finance is disrupting the traditional financial system and may in fact herald the future of global finance at a time when everything it seems is going digital. So it's perhaps no surprise that it's happening to the world of finance and international payment systems too. And this is starting to affect us all. For instance, launched in 2009 in the wake of the last financial crisis by an anonymous creator called Satoshi Nakamoto, Bitcoin has moved in value from literally one cent to today's valuation of close to 60,000 US dollars per Bitcoin. It's an extraordinary rise. Earlier this year, El Salvador became the first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as a national currency, with others expected to follow. But it's not all about Bitcoin. There are many other digital currencies, such as Ripple XRP, which some governments, and possibly even the World Bank, are looking at to establish what are being called CBDCs, which are central bank digital currencies. And these are designed to compete with cryptos like Bitcoin. Just in the past week, the president of Palau, Senator Sarangal Whips Jr., announced that Palau was working with Ripple XRP to develop its own CBDC and stablecoin. It's a fast-moving space, with this new tech being adopted at an exponential rate. We've also just seen Facebook rebrand as Meta, to secure its place in the emerging metaverse. And this is likely to run on various cryptocurrencies and become a big part of our social and business world in the future. This is going to affect all our lives. So let's start with the basics to get a handle on it and understand how it will impact Pacific communities. I'd like to start with you, Lord Fusitua, Can you tell us what is the purpose of Bitcoin and why do you want to introduce it to Tonga? So uh, for our purposes, uh, Bitcoin uh, is money. Uh, Everything else is something else. Uh, Not that those something else is uh, uh, without utility. I'm sure the utility is through the roof. But uh, Bitcoin is a monetary system. So for a nation state's purposes, only a monetary system is, is um, of uh, utility to us. Uh, so Bitcoin specifically uh, does a number of things for us. It answers uh, the GDP remittance problem. 
So Tonga is the most GDP remittance dependent country on the planet uh, at 40.1% of our GDP. So nearly half of our country's productivity is based on remittances. Uh, our 2020 GDP was 510 million. Uh, of that 200 million were remittances. Unfortunately, only about 140 million of that 200 reached Tonga. Uh, between Western Union, MoneyGram uh, and the banks, uh, they took a $65 million bite out of that 200 million. Uh, so Bitcoin on the Lightning Network gives us three things. Cross-border, peer-to-peer uh, -peer international payments with no intermediaries instantly for the tenth of a cost of a tenth of a penny. So effectively free. Uh, so Bitcoin on the Lightning Network uh, means that if you send $100 from Sydney, uh, Auckland or San Francisco, you would usually receive 70 in Tonga. Uh, now you'll receive 100 uh, So that gives everyone in the country, because pretty much everyone receives remittances, 30% extra disposable income. Okay, So of that 30% extra disposable income, uh, because Tonga uh, is a largely informal economy, like most emerging markets, uh, we don't make the chunk, large chunk of our taxation dollars off income tax because not a large portion of people work in formal uh, employment. So as with most uh, emerging markets, we have a, a consumption tax of 15%. So that if you buy a stick of gum or a fishing net, if you're a village fisherman, or you pay for a, an hour of the tractor. If you're a village farmer, you pay 15% on that. So Bitcoin giving us an extra 30% of disposable income means there's an extra 30% of capital going into that government, into the government's 15%. Uh, so that's win number two. Uh, win number three is for people who've been hand to mouth for most of their lives on that $70, which is effectively uh, our, our unemployment benefit uh, have been hand to mouth with the extra 30%. You will naturally spend it uh, to increase your standard of living. Uh, that's to be expected. So maybe your children go to school uh, with breakfast now instead of without. Uh, but eventually you will remember that you got by on the 70. Uh, and for the first time, uh, in a lot of people's lives, they will have the opportunity to have savings. Uh, their disposable income was never enough before to even contemplate savings. Uh, the difference is because you're receiving your remittance in Bitcoin, you're not saving in a protocol, even the world reserve currency of USD, which is melting at 5% per annum. You're saving in a protocol that has a CAGR uh, year on year average appreciation of 200 to 230% since its inception. Uh, so that's win number three. Uh, and win number four is uh, if you uh, make it legal tender and transact and save in it, then uh, naturally your, or if Bitcoin is the apex predator asset, which it is, then uh, the best relationship to have with it is to be producing your own. Uh, that's the best relationship for individuals and that's the best relationship for a nation state to have with Bitcoin. That's why uh, El Salvador uh, moved so quickly 
into Bitcoin mining. So uh, Tonga receives its electricity uh, in the most expensive fashion possible, which is from old diesel generators. Uh, with Bitcoin mining, um, we were fortunate, or I've been fortunate enough to be been approached by geothermal mining companies willing to offer their technology gratis uh, because one, in the Bitcoin community, uh, everyone loves the little engine that could, so they're happy to help uh, a small nation uh, succeed. Uh, secondly, uh, it serves similar to a model home for a realtor. Uh, as an advertisement for their technology. So Tonga can switch from expensive diesel generators to the 21 volcanoes we have, which will generate, according to these people's estimates who offered their technology, 95 megawatts per volcano. Uh, in a country of 100,000, that's one volcano for every 5,000 people. It only takes two megawatts of electricity to service 5,000 people. That means it takes 40 megawatts of electricity to service a nation of 100,000. That's with the 95 megawatts at 21 volcanoes, that's 2,000 megawatts. That gives us 1,560 odd megawatts to spare. Uh, so you can, uh, 40 megawatts will uh, power the whole nation. Uh, if you run, uh, which they have, uh, these have also been offered, uh, which are called hash cuts. It's like a 40-foot container. Half of it is a mining rig, uh, or mining rigs, rather, uh, plural. Uh, and the other half, um, when Tonga laid fibre to the door with the World Bank in 2014, um, we future-proofed... Uh, our bandwidth requirements uh, to at least a decade or two. So we have a couple of gig, 100 gigabit up and down to the door uh, and the whole country uses only five gigabits. So with that excess bandwidth, um, AWS's uh, Southern Hemisphere headquarters uh, in Sydney. Uh, so if you ran cheaper data centres for AWS, and got even 0.01% of their business. Uh, that's about 200 to $300 billion you're looking at. So these these, yeah, these containers, half mining rig, half hash hut, for it, for, to have one container for every family in the country will only take 400 megawatts. So we still have 1,500 megawatts to spare. What do you do? Canada has a lot of hydroelectricity. They exported across the border to New Jersey and New York. Uh, fortunately, uh, electricity only travels 500 kilometres a pop. After that, it loses voltage. So we have Fiji, Samoa, Tuvalu, Wallace and Petuna, a couple of places inside the 500 kilometre radius that you could uh, potentially export to. Uh, finally, uh, what do you do? In step, so that's step three. Step four is... And this is exactly Naib Bukele's playbook that we're emulating here. Step four is moving your national treasuries. Uh, so Tonga has 700 million USD in national treasuries. In the three uh, things that uh, emerging market central bankers consider uh, sort of canon, uh, USD, world reserve currency, uh, US bonds and gold. 
The problem is, uh, as I've said, for the past 20 years, USD has been devaluing at 5% per annum. Uh, government bonds have been negative since 2010. Uh, and gold depreciates at 2 to 6% per annum. So a completely dispassionate, unemotional uh, decision would be those three melting assets or into an asset which appreciates it over 200% per annum. If we put our USD $700 million treasuries into uh, Bitcoin in March 2020, they'd be worth $22.5 billion USD now. Uh, our annual GDP of $500 million goes into that 45 times. So Tonga would have earned 45 years worth of economic output in 11 months. That's nearly half a century of economic output in 11 months if we'd moved it into Bitcoin. So as a basic general outline, that's what Bitcoin does for us. So it looks like a, a confluence of many potential benefits from renewable energy to better remittance returns uh, and, and possibly even future business. I'd like to bring Josh in now. Josh, Bitcoin pioneered blockchain but blockchain technology is now being used to underpin many emerging technologies. Can you briefly explain how blockchain works and what else it's being used for? So basically what blockchain does is take information, um, hash it, so shrink it down in terms of how much data it takes and store it in, in a um, connected chain so that information in this connected chain um, can't be tampered with you can't go backwards in time to fiddle with things previously um, it's computer scientists listening i apologize in advance for the hash and pardon the pun um, and so what that enables the the particular sort of arrangements of um, cryptography and um, computing power and, and so forth enables um, some really useful functions um, such as you know, the cryptocurrencies that we've heard about um, but also different different ways to arrange and store data and to to point at other pieces of data that you don't necessarily have to store so some people think of it as a database of databases. And so the non-cryptocurrency use cases that Oxfam's been exploring, just as an example of how this can work outside of the cryptocurrency space, uh, is in digital identity. So using um, credentials, micro-credentials, and storing, tying that those credentials to your digital identity in a way that's tamper-proof um, and that you can have control over. Um, we're also, we've done it in um, the organic rice supply chain from Cambodia to, to the Netherlands, whereby we're storing information about contracts and agreements in some of the um, farming some of the farming communities that we work with in Cambodia, hard sort of coding the, the contracts and agreements that farmers have with their associations and their 
wholesalers and exporters and importers and converting that into a smart contract, which is um, another blockchain um, invention came out with Ethereum in 2015, um, six years after Bitcoin sort of established the technology. Ethereum is considered the sort of next major advance in, in the technology by baking into the blockchain um, the smart contracts that trigger automatically based on certain conditions. And so we use that functionality to ensure that farmers get paid what they were agreed and it automatically triggers out. We've also done something similar um, using the technology as a database of databases for farmers in Sri Lanka that um, often have crop losses because of adverse weather effects and that's increasing due to climate change. Taking the weather information and forecasts um, tying that to insurance, microinsurance, and triggering payments so that people can sort of survive the, the bad times um, when their crops are, are damaged. So that's um, at least three. There's, there's a few more different use cases in sort of, you know, colleagues um, in the Pacific. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in some of the Pacific examples. Uh, and as someone who's lived in Vanuatu for the last 20 years, I was there last year through Cyclone Harold. Um, and of course, with closed borders, it meant that the aid community had to respond differently to the way it normally would. And, and this was the first time I'd heard about sort of blockchain being used as disaster response. So, yeah, I'm particularly interested in that example. Can you, can you explain how, how that Vanuatu experiment uh, was done and, and what you learned from it? Yeah, sure. It was, um, so we started working on it in 2017. Um, effectively, what it is, is in the humanitarian space after disasters, there's been an, a growing trend and Oxfam's a very strong supporter of um, where appropriate, not giving people stuff um, after a disaster, giving people money or vouchers to use. And there's a whole range of evidence that demonstrates that, A, it's a lot more dignified. You give people the choice of what they want to spend their money on um, to, to recover from a disaster. Uh, it's usually faster, cheaper, um, and, <clears throat> and cuts out some of those issues around supply chains for, for all the humanitarian stock. So... We, in the Pacific, um, that hasn't happened or hadn't really been established in, the, um, in responding to disasters. And so Oxfam has led a few studies to, and then started to build the capability working with government and the private sector to enable this cash and voucher assistance after disasters. And we thought instead of doing it the sort of traditional way and in some cases you're giving people checks or bank transfers or cold hard cash um, that has many of the same problems that um, the Lord was speaking about with remittances we thought we'd leapfrog that and see if we could use blockchain technology uh, and stable coins 
uh, the, the type of cryptocurrency that is pegged to a fiat um, currency to, to enable a better, um, faster, cheaper, more dignified, more transparent um, type of assistance following disasters. And so we started working, we set up a whole range of um, different groups in Vanuatu to, to understand um, if people wanted this and if this could be of use. And we did a couple of small pilots, um, sort of building the, using the Ethereum um, blockchain as the underlying tech with a particular stablecoin um, and testing that with communities to see if that worked for them around how they wanted to do things. And we were able to change the code um, right there and then next to, next to people's shops. So can I ask, just to interrupt there, sorry, how, how does it work practically? I mean, do you still need people on the ground who go to register local people? And I mean, one, one thing that occurred to me is often in the aftermath of a disaster, you're not going to have internet. You're not going to have a whole bunch of infrastructure. So how does it actually work? How can you send digital payments to people in the aftermath of a disaster? And what, what's the process in terms of registration and, and making it feasible? So the way that we've done it in Vanuatu, and it's, it's a fairly common way of organising this, is with vouchers. And so you have shops, participating shops, that, you, that we give um, a smartphone uh, with an app on it. And then we did a bunch of research with people around what type of thing they would use to, to access stuff from the shops. And people were most familiar and wanted to use a card. Um, and so it just looks like a, a credit card. It has an NFC chip in it. And so we, we do register people, but the registration times are now, I think, around six minutes, whereas in most programs, cash and voucher assistance programming, it takes a lot longer. Give the people the cards uh, and then they can use it at any participating shops. Um, and then the shop owners, all they need is the smartphone, um, which simplifies things for them uh, significantly. Um, and then you effectively just tap the card on the phone and you can see your balance if you need to um, and you can get what you need at, at the various different shops. And so what that does is you know, give people a huge amount of choice and diversity of, of what they want after a disaster, helps rebuild markets after a disaster. And the way that we've used the tech in this particular instance means that um, it will reconcile on the phone if it doesn't have internet, the app is able to function offline. And I think as long as it um, has a connection every two or three days, then it synchronizes everything and, and it all works out. And what we find in disasters is that usually the internet and telecommunications is one of the first things to get reestablished. Um, and you're right, in some cases it takes maybe up to three or four days, um, but often we see it established sooner. And part of the, the benefit of using blockchain as the underlying tech is that we're not reliant on um, servers in Vanuatu, for example, being damaged in a cyclone and then 
not allowing us to use the, the applications because it's distributed um, the, the text it's always on okay and so how, what was the response to this pilot from local people affected and, and also from the Vanuatu government? Uh, overwhelmingly positive, actually. Um, we've used it in three different crises um, in Vanuatu, in the, the volcano response in the north, um, the TC Harold, as you mentioned, and COVID. And it's been overwhelmingly positive. Um, we've involved the government and communities from the very beginning. Um, we, ha <clears throat> we had um, some work to do right at the start around um, sort of literacy, I guess, in, in using the technology with different parts of the government and some community leaders. Um, but that uh, openness and willingness to, to work together and work through some of these issues has meant now that legislation has changed to allow the use of cryptocurrencies in humanitarian contexts in Vanuatu. Um, We've had different parts of the government asking us to um, use, for them to use the technology in different settings to, to enable effectively a shock responsive social protection system in Vanuatu. So it's been overwhelmingly positive. Now, there's many benefits uh, potentially to using digital currencies and payments, uh, but there are also legitimate security concerns around criminals using the anonymity of crypto like Bitcoin. Um, you know, it evades sanctions. It's hard for financial intelligence units to track. And some say crypto is, is even a direct threat to the banking system and even national stability. It's also no surprise that hackers and criminals engaged in cyber attacks and ransomware attacks are demanding payments in crypto like Bitcoin uh, in order to cover their tracks. So Lord Fusutua, how do you respond when people say that you know Bitcoin is basically for criminals and that crypto ad adoption is only adding to the rising threat of transnational crime in the region? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so yesterday I opened um, Transparency International's uh, briefing for Pacific parliamentarians on the corruption barometer. Uh, so the majority of my international parliamentary work is as chairman of GOPAC for Oceania. Uh, it's the only, it's the global organisation of parliamentarians against corruption. It's the only parliamentary networks devoted solely uh, to anti-corruption. So we're the legislative wing that works with the executive wing. So when you get KYC AML, that's so that that data gets sent to us. Uh, and with NATO, we track illicit financial flows uh, to the Middle East, uh, to ISIS. Uh, and with Interpol, we track illicit financial flows uh, coming out, uh, the China white that comes out of China through Southeast Asia into the Pacific, then into Australia and the US West Coast. Uh, and the Sinaloa, Cali, uh, Juarez, Juarez cartel cocaine that comes back the other way. Uh, so uh, I can tell you uh, the currency of uh, international drugs and crime uh, is fiat cash. Uh, that's uh, the currency of international, uh, transnational crime. 
Uh, Bitcoin, uh, as with most uh, cryptocurrencies, unfortunately is pseudonymous, for, unfortunately for criminals. So if you keep your Bitcoin on Coinbase, uh, the FBI can and has forced Coinbase to open their books uh, and tell you who owns uh, that Bitcoin address. So it's pseudonymous because on the blockchain, uh, every address is public. It's an open source network. Uh, so you can see uh, what money is going where and how much. It's just not attached uh, to uh, a particular uh, name. Uh, but for the majority of uh, institutional uh, and retail users, it is. It's connected to an exchange. Uh, so it's extremely easy to track. Uh, so uh, the claim that uh, Bitcoin is primarily for criminals is unfortunately just, well, fortunately rather, uh, just wrong, uh, factually incorrect. Uh, as I said, uh, as an international uh, anti-corruption legislator, uh, fiat cash, uh, what HSBC does, uh, what Barclays does with uh, fiat cash is our greatest worry because that's where the cartels uh, send their uh, semi-trailer loads of uh, US dollars through. Uh, they don't measure their money um, in numerical amounts. They weigh their cash by semi-trailer tonnage. How many semi-trailers of fiat uh, is this current load of cocaine worth? So, yeah, the, the response to that claim is that it's factually incorrect. Its ability to destabilise uh, the banking industry, uh, that's kind of the whole point. Um, central uh, fiat central banking, uh, five centuries strong uh, in the G7 nations, the US, uh, the UK, uh, where the control of your time and your energy after 12 hours in the meatpacking plants, uh, the value of your time and energy that you put into that dollar you earn is not under your control. Uh, uh, the value of that currency is set by someone else. The supply of that currency is set by someone else. The oscillation uh, of its market price uh, and the rate of exchange for it with other currencies is set by someone else. So uh, that's central banking. And then commercial banking through fractional reserve banking uh, takes uh, holds your 10% and then loans your 90% out to make profit for itself uh, using your money. Um, not their own. So uh, the ability to destabilise those two sets of institutions who completely uh, extract your ability to control the value of your own time and energy is probably a good thing. Uh, when Naib Bukele was asked uh, in an interview about um, his concerns about the World Bank and the IMF's reactions to their adopting legal tender, his response was, well, these people haven't really been so good to us in the past. So uh, that is the track record for all of us. Uh, the only rights in our country's nearly 2,000-year history were in 2006 when public servants' wages were cut by 40% uh, in compliance with World Bank austerity measures. Our current king was the prime minister at the time. Our current prime minister was auditor general at the time. So they oversaw 
the social and economic collapse that the World Bank austerity measures uh, foisted upon us. So uh, their um, views in seeing a system which caused our social and economic collapse slightly destabilised uh, and ability to sever us from that, uh, they wouldn't be too upset to see the back of those institutions. That wraps up another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. I'd like to thank our two guests, Lord Fuzitua from Tonga and Josh Hallwright, blockchain advisor to Oxfam. Thank you both very much for joining us. We're going to continue this conversation in part two, so stay tuned. You can find us on our website, pacificsecurity.net, and our Facebook page for the Australia Pacific Security College. Our theme music is the song Tabaran by Not Drowning Waving. And thanks to Liam Taylor for producing this episode. I'm Ben Bohane. Tune in next time to the Pacific Wayfinder.